0: Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real-life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien with Nicole Braddock-Bromley. Today, we get to talk with Dr. Diane Langberg, a leading Christian psychologist on trauma.
1: Diane, hi, it's Nicole Bromley. Hi, Nicole. It's so nice to hear your voice in person. I've looked up to you for a number of years. I heard about oh, you my. Uh, from Boz, actually, at Grace. Ah, okay. Thank you so much for your time. I know you're a wanted woman and uh, <laughs> survivors um, really treasure your time, so I'm grateful for your voice today. You're welcome. <laughs> well, first and foremost, you have been working with sexual abuse survivors for how many years now?
2: Forty-five. Wow,
1: that's wow. amazing. So you have so much experience, obviously, and I, I've heard a lot of your work with trauma memories. And I think that's something that's very unique um, when it comes to your experience that I would love for you to share. Um, So many of the survivors, and I don't know if you know much about my story um, and I've written a few books. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, I was sexually abused when I was younger by my stepfather, who was also a leader in our church um, for about 10 years. And I finally found the courage to tell my mom when I was 14 and Um, I think the stereotype for me when I speak and when I write is that growing up, you know, I was like the perfect girl from the perfect family. So no one would have ever suspected that this was going on for 10 years of my childhood. Um, but when I finally told my mom, she did believe me and reported it. And then seven days later, my stepfather took his own life. And so that kind of shattered my perfect world for, you know, moving forward when it came to my trauma, um, and I tried to really cover it up again with that perfect girl mask, but I realized over time that the trauma memories were still there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've heard you say before that since we can't erase them, then we have to learn to live with them so they don't poison us. Yes. I, I love that because I feel like that's so true in my own life. But also as I've been speaking, at, I speak mostly at Christian colleges across the country And just story after story will emerge after they hear my story. And so many of them have those same questions. Nicole, I have been able to talk about my abuse, you know, maybe with a counselor or with a trusted friend. And, you know, I feel like I'm at this point in my healing where things are pretty good, but these trauma memories will emerge or I'll be triggered by something and it completely. Stops me in my tracks, you know, this healing journey that I'm on, it just becomes scary and dark and I'm isolating myself and it invokes the fear and the panic and uh, mistrust, confusion, anxiety. So my question, I guess, for you, uh, Dr. Langberg, is just what do we do with that? How do you recommend a survivor of sexual abuse to go about learning to live with these memories?
2: If somebody told me that was happening, I think one of the first things I would suggest is that there may be um, other ways to do work with those memories that did not get done, say, the first round in counseling, because most things, particularly things that are painful um, and traumatic, come off in layers, Mm -hmm. which is on the one hand hard because we want it to be done (laughs) but on the other hand it's gracious because we would be so overwhelmed if we had to do all the layers at one time we wouldn't get through it yeah yeah. And so there's, and I always tell people, people who come and then they say, I think I'm finished and we agree and they go. And then, you know, five years later, they knock on my door again.
3: <laughs> right.
2: And and there is absolutely no shame in that because mm-hmm. you've been out there doing life and, and living in the present and moving forward and everything else. Mm-hmm. And then it's as if, you know, your mind and God together say, okay, here's another layer you need to look at so you can have even more freedom. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think it's important for people to understand, number one, that's really normal. Mm-hmm. There's no shame in it. And, um, you know, it, it, it was indeed traumatic. Right. Yeah, and so validating that. Something that falls mm-hmm. into that category is not something that you tell tell the story once from beginning to end and mm-hmm. then you feel better. That's mm-hmm. not how it happens. <laughs> Oftentimes those other layers have to do with understanding New ways or deeper ways that it has actually continued to affect us or manage us in some ways that we don't want it to.
1: Mm, yeah.
2: So it's it, the memory's talking to you, and you need to have a conversation with it and listen to the memory and your own response to it with somebody else to help to figure out what it's saying and mm. what you can learn from that to move forward.
1: So a lot of that is just about revisiting it, being okay with revisiting that memory. Maybe you've already worked through the same one before, but there's something new that's coming up for you and to not ignore it, but to look at it in a safe environment, talk through it, cry through it, be angry through it, feel through it, and see maybe what God wants to show you. Yes. And learn how to talk back to it. Mm. So what does that mean? Talking back to a trauma memory the visual that I have is standing
2: in front of it with your legs partly apart and your hands on your hips and saying, you listen to me.
1: <laughs> I like it. Okay. Um, That's how Mary talks to do, me. To do with, so yes,
2: you can't talk to me like that because you're full <laughs> of lies and I'm not going to believe what you're telling me about myself. Yeah. So there's, there's often that piece of it, particularly if it recycles around again, there's probably a place where it still has a toe hold where you – Maybe don't entirely believe what it's telling you, Mm. but there's a piece of that in there. Mm. And so dealing with it face on in that way turns the light on full force as opposed to just kind of keep pushing it back into the corner thing, which doesn't work very well anyway. Mm. And so the light goes on full force and you identify, oh my gosh, I've been believing this. You know, listen to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's not God's truth. You lose
1: a little bit of uncovering maybe the lie that's um rooted in that memory yes so would you say the best way to go about working through a trauma memory would be in a counseling office or just one-on-one with your journal and praying to god or with a friend or through like artistic creative outlets or, or all, all of them above.
2: <laughs> yeah okay and some of that depends on the person and the resources they have access to with their own i mean people who can paint and make music and write and all those things have an outlet that people who aren't so good at those things don't
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: you know and so but but it is probably wise to have some other human voice there part of it for part of it with you because they will see things more clearly than you do because they're not in the fog of it
1: yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense. So what, what do you do when you're counseling a survivor who has these types of trauma memories, specifically from sexual abuse, and they're also in the midst of feeling really triggered in their life. So maybe they're even to a point where, you know, we've talked with many who, you know, they, we have these pictures in our head, like movie scenes that are flipping, you know, and, and they're tormenting pictures of something that happened so long ago, but the current day is they're keeping us from sleeping, from eating, from socializing, from, you know, life. So how would you counsel someone to be able to deal with a trigger when it comes on?
2: Well, if, if you look at uh, the, the, the way that I think about a counseling with somebody, mm-hmm. the first stage is ever and always safety and stabilization,
3: mm-hmm. okay.
2: which is skill building. Okay. Okay, and so that's not only the first stage, it's the most often repeated stage. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: So you can do that work and somebody can um, learn a way to manage their anxiety differently, their their thoughts differently, and all of those things. Then you look at the story.
3: Mm.
2: And every time the story overwhelms, you go back to safety and stabilization. Okay. So if somebody comes with um, a memory, even if they've worked on it before whatever but it's 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 really interfering with their lives or something you know and keep slipping through as you say and it's affecting their sleep on all that yeah. i go back to stage one
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know what can we do to help you feel safe and to stabilize what kind of skills are you using which ones are working which ones aren't what else can we try so that there's a sense of mastery over the present day self before you look at the place where you weren't in power
1: mm, okay that's really good okay
2: and I would say, first of all, trauma aside, human beings have very stressful times in their lives when they need to practice skills for safety and stabilization. Right. You know, where they're not sleeping well or they're whatever, mm-hmm. or they're not managing their emotions well. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just part of being human in life where we get overwhelmed or too stressed or whatever. You add trauma to that, and it happens much more
1: frequently, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is
2: not a commentary on the person. It's a commentary on trauma.
1: Right. Okay. That's a good way to look at it.
2: And so... You know, oftentimes I'll have people who say, okay, look, these are the skills I learned from you. I've been trying these skills, but they're not quite getting me through this piece right here.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay,
2: let's begin to think of new ways that you can use and add to your skill bag, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my therapists here calls it a toolkit. <laughs> yeah. And and so add to it so that then we can look at this and see why it has a hold in a different way than other memories Uh, that aren't bothering you like that. And sometimes it's because something in the present, and it doesn't even have to be a big obvious thing, something in the present produced a sense of the self and or emotions that felt very like that old space where you were little and didn't have power and all those things.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: And so then all of that wells up, number one. Two, you start believing the lies on some level, maybe not the same level as before. And that can easily happen.
1: You talked a little bit about safety and finding your safe place. How do you help clients feel safe when they have this overwhelming belief that people can't be safe or God is not safe?
2: Well, it's actually a very slow process.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: You know, I can have somebody who might come and see me for two years before they think they feel halfway safe in my office. Mm. And that's okay. And I tell them that because yeah. part of what they're doing is testing it, and they darn well should.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> that's good to hear. Yeah. I've heard you, or it's, I think I read an article where you referred to your counseling work as a front row seat to redemption. I yes. love that because change is slow, and the healing process is certainly a lifelong journey. It uh, is. It and is. So for you to say, you know, in a counseling office, if I had you as a counselor, which I wish I did, um, <laughs> For, to, for me to hear you say it's OK that you don't feel safe yet, you know, I'm still here or, you know, that you can mm-hmm. model patience through that process. I think that would help survivors a lot to be able to finally feel OK to sit down in a counselor's office and get very vulnerable. But you're right. It's a slow process. So what is it that you do? Is it just that you validate that feeling in them to eventually help them feel safe?
2: Well, I even tell them there's something to admire about it, Hmm. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: because if, and this happens to some survivors, if after being abused, you don't recognize safety at all, you don't know what safe looks like, and you just believe people's words, guess what's going to happen? Mm -hmm. If people's words don't show you they're safe, people's character over time demonstrates safety. That's right, yeah, that's right. And that's true for everybody. Yes, it is, yeah. Yeah. And so the fact that you're taking your time to figure out if I'm really safe, I applaud. Mhm.
1: That that's maturity, that's wisdom. All those things. Right, especially through the experiences that they've had. Yes. Mm-hmm. And
2: if if, you know, you go even back to your own story, suppose your mother said it wasn't true and left you to have it happen more.
1: Exactly. How different that would have been for me another level and of then, trauma. and then you get a church that supports him mm-hmm.
2: and yeah. not you mm-hmm. and so there truly was no safety anywhere when that happens and somebody doesn't have a file for it they don't know what it looks like mm-hmm. and so they either don't trust anybody ever which seems rational to me or they trust people and don't know how to test Good. don't know how to wait and see
1: mm-hmm. and so they
2: end up injured again by other people exactly
1: Wow. And I know that, you know, most of your clients, am I right, were actually abused by Christian leaders?
2: Or parents. Okay. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. How does that healing... My work
2: has largely been within the Christian community. Right, right. Which means that the abuse that I have seen of, of multiple kinds has been done by people who say they're Christian.
1: So how does that healing journey look different in your many years of experience imagine there's a lot of extra work when it comes to views of God or of the church. And honestly, I think a lot of our listening audience are victims of that hashtag church to movement. Yes. And maybe they haven't been able to ever walk into a counselor's office, you know, because it's an authority figure. What would you tell them? What do you think is important for their healing that might look different than, you know, someone else who wasn't abused by someone who claimed to be, you know, a Christian or a leader in a church.
2: Part of what's happened when either parents and or church community or whatever have been part of the abusing process Mm -hmm. is that the person has been all of their lives basically marinated in lies about God. Mm -hmm. because He doesn't look anything like any of that. Mm -hmm. They don't know that. Most people that I have worked with, this very small minority come in and just want everything to be okay with God so they can feel better, <laughs> which is, they, they, then they don't want want to work with the trauma. So that's not going to be helpful. But the vast majority of them don't want to hear anything about him. And I honor that. They don't circle around to about it, to uh, to look at it more and all that kind of stuff until way down the road. And again, I think, first of all, that makes sense to me. But, but, but second of all, it is how we work as humans. If you think about it, a lot of what we think about God or his characteristics that the scripture tells us about or whatever are all abstract things. God is love. Well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, if you grow up in a healthy home where you're loved and you're safe and everything, you learn from those people something about what love looks like. So, mm-hmm. then somebody says God is love and that's what you related to. Well, what if you never had anybody like that? <laughs> right. Right. So people are up there telling you God is love mm. and this is what the people who were supposed to love you did. Yeah. Right. So human beings learn about the abstract
1: through concrete things in the flesh things. And that's what frustrates me so much of all these churches that are covering up abuse, you know, or just where secrecy is just reigning and uh, you know, it's it's giving God a bad rap. <laughs> Honestly, sure and it's, it's hurting the cause of the church, in my opinion, when we have so many sexual abuse survivors running around wounded and looking for a safe haven. They're looking for Christ and they go in the church and then they find, oh, well, they're just covering it up, too. It's just I wish that this Me Too movement would wake these churches up, but I don't know. I'm not seeing it happen as quickly as I would like. Well, it's not going
2: to be quick, I can tell you that.
1: (laughs) Unfortunately. But yes,
2: God says, I'm a refuge. Mm -hmm. You sit in a pew and hear somebody say that about God, but you've never been safe or found a refuge, that is nonsense. You don't have a file in your brain for that. You don't Mm -hmm. even know what a refuge feels like. And if he's such a refuge, why is all this happening to me? Mm hmm. And then you add to that that the church is either complicit or the abusers from the church or they cover it up or whatever else. But the other piece is all humans learn about the spiritual by way of the flesh. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why Jesus came in the flesh. Mm-hmm. You want to know what God looks like? This is what he looks like. This is how he acts. This is how he treats children. This is how he thinks about children. This is how he treats women, whatever. Yeah. In the flesh. That's why, I mean, I... I often say to people, you know, when the, the sacraments of the Church are baptism and communion, that's water, bread, and wine, that's the diet of a peasant, that's what he gave us. This is who I am, he says. Mm-hmm. And so what, what has happened then is that the spiritual may have been taught in words, but not in flesh. Mm-hmm. And it's what's in the flesh that is learned.
1: In that sense, it, it sort of gets me passionate and motivated to speak more to Christian leaders or community leaders to equip them to be that flesh um, to survivors. You know, a lot of my work has been focused on shedding light into the darkness so that survivors would find their voice and thus begin their healing journeys. But hearing you talk about that, makes me feel like there's such a need for leaders to understand what it looks like to enter into suffering, to enter into the trauma with these survivors so that their healing can be real. Yes. Yes.
2: Mm -hmm. We need to be, as the church, we need to be in the flesh. Mm -hmm. Truth about God not life.
1: How do we wake the church up to this? I mean, it's right in our faces every day right now. What can we do more to get the churches to understand the need for, say, survivors to find their voice in their church, for leaders to understand how to enter into suffering with these people and acknowledge it from the pulpit? I mean, what do you think we need to do moving forward to really make an impact?
2: Well, in some ways, it's not dissimilar from what we need to do with the church regarding centuries of racism. Oh, yeah. You're right. You know, call the church to repentance. Mm -hmm. Speak the word of God to them. Be a prophetic voice. Turn on the light. Some of them will run. Mm -hmm. Some of them will hide under cover of darkness. But some of them will listen. I mean, that that is what, I, you know, more and more, that's what I'm doing. I have a big conference here in Philly, uh, Saturday, Mm -hmm. which is exactly that. I'm speaking on power and its abuse. I'm speaking on understanding abuse. Mm. And I'm speaking on what the church's response should look like.
1: Wow.
2: Um, well, and go so. Go ahead
1: and practice your speech right now for us. <laughs> Give <laughs> us your bullet
3: points.
2: <laughs> so, yes, I, I think uh, this is what I believe, and which is something I will say on Saturday mm. that the voice of victims, which has been raised in recent days, is the prophetic voice to the church. Wow. The the voice of the vulnerable, of the little, of the ones that have been run over by the trucks, and the ones that the church has left by the side of the road, that's the voice of God to the church. Listen to them, see yourself, fall on your face and repent, and learn to be like me. That's what it is. And what, unfortunately many people do is see those voices as a disturbance which is exactly what the religious leaders did with the little ones in jesus time and he said don't get in their way listen because of such of the ones like these that is my kingdom that's what he said
1: yeah it's a good reminder that silencing victims and their struggles just only causes more damage to them but also to our witness and to our communities You know, when we invite stories, when we invite truth, and when we invite um, trauma into our circles, we're inviting God himself. Yes, and it will change us
2: for his glory. Right. It will obviously bring hope and healing to survivors, but it will change those who listen in redemptive ways.
1: Yeah, it makes me think of, you know, times in my life, both personally and also as I've, you know, mentored and walked with hurting people, just when you just have answers, pat answers, it goes nowhere. It doesn't Mm -hmm. infiltrate you. It doesn't enter your heart. I could hear the truth over and over um, until someone was blue in the face, but it wasn't entering my heart and my mind until I finally allowed it to come from the heart of God. And oftentimes it would be just through, you know, someone showing me that um but i also think that for me personally when i was um 14 and i had told and i i was allowing god to really just come into my life in a way where i could be angry with him i could be real Mm -hmm. with him that relationship was so much different than the prior years when i was just trying to portray myself as a Christian, you know, say and do the right things. And so it's just a reminder to me that it's okay for things to be messy. And in fact, for me, I've seen how God enters into the mess and it it becomes so much more beautiful and so much more real um, for myself and for those around me.
2: I I often, in working with uh, survivors um, somewhere along the way, teach them how to lament. I mean, the mm-hmm. church has lost the art of lamenting, frankly. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we're told to have faith and do all these things, and it's like there's a button you push, which there is no button. Um, but but the the scripture, if you look at the Psalms mm-hmm. um, about, you know, trying to hide from somebody who's trying to get you, and, and where are you, God, and why have you left me? Yeah, and. Right. And so when they begin question. to see that those things are in the scriptures that they can say and it's true. Yeah. But they can say it to God uh-huh. because it's his word. And then eventually they can write their own lament. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and you know he, he didn't just bear our sin, he bore our griefs and our sorrows. He wants them.
1: He wants us to speak the truth about them. That's good. And I think we hear a lot of truth as survivors who are on the healing journey, you know, things like you are not alone. It wasn't your fault. And I personally have found these to be key to my healing journey. Um, But what have you found to be fundamental truths, you know, that are crucial for that healing journey of sexual abuse survivors?
2: Well, one is simply, you know, you've talked about telling your story, which at the beginning, you know, you can't say once upon a time this happened and then this and then this. That's not how victim stories are told. You know, they're Mm -hmm. told mixed up and backwards and upside down and everything else. And eventually they become a narrative. Um, So I, I think that, you know, having that voice not only for what was done, but for the impact of what was done and how it has shaped me, and what I feel about all of that. I think those are absolutely vital, and they take time and lots of repetition. And that's the way it is. That's not a problem or whatever. I think also, you know, you said it's not my fault. One of the things I I learned in in the early years when I first started, there was no literature. There were no, Mm -hmm. I mean, post-traumatic stress disorder wasn't even a diagnostic category back then. And there weren't very many women in the field. So people were coming to me and telling me things. I had no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> and I couldn't find anything. I mean, first of all, there was no Google, you know, so that's a problem. <laughs> but what was in the literature was Freud, who said women told him these stories, and he decided they were lies. That was what was in the literature. Wow. wow. So I ended up learning a great deal about trauma from Holocaust survivors. Those were the books I read.
0: Holocaust survivors. And-
2: yeah, like Elie Wiesel. Yeah. Primo Levy. And they both talk about shame. Mm-hmm. And they both talk about what it's like to bear the shame that belongs to the perpetrator. And th- which is what happens with victims. They feel full of shame, but the fact is, it's not their shame. The shame is of the person who did it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so learning that over time is a huge piece and also, of course, a slow, hard piece. Definitely. But I often. It's a little graphic, I suppose, but I, I, which I guess you can do on a podcast, but I often <gasps> yes. say to them, you know, if you were standing next to somebody and they vomited all over you, who's going to smell bad? Oh. You are.
1: Yeah. That's so it's true. Not your
2: vomit. It's not a sign of your sickness. It's picture. because you were standing near somebody who was really sick. And so you still have to get a shower, <laughs> <laughs> but it's external to you. It didn't come from your heart. So it's it's things like that that try to help them understand, yes, there's a great burden of shame, but no, it is not yours.
1: But unfortunately, we have to walk out
2: all oh, this work, this hard work. Yes. And people often will express the fact this seems really unfair and not, you know, the fact is, yes, it is. Yeah. You know, if somebody runs over your legs with a truck, they're going to walk home. You're not. That's right. not fair. But over time, part of what is also seen is that the work of God and the knowledge of God and the redemptive aspects of God are known by the person whose legs got run over in a way that the person who 's walking can't see there's gifts mm-hmm. even in that injustice. Now, yeah. would I rather it never happened? Of course, uh-huh. certainly they would, mm-hmm. but there are treasures it's in Isaiah where he says, you know the, the tre- he talks about the treasures of darkness." Uh, and uh, the treasure's in the hidden places, the hard places. And and the treasure in the darkness, of course, ultimately, is Christ
1: himself. He's there. It's certainly true. Just, you know, having walked out my healing journey for a number of years now, and I feel like I know him in such a deeper way through suffering that I wouldn't have without it. And yes, I've had to depend on him in ways that those who have not experienced what I've experienced wouldn't depend on him in that way you know so those yeah. are definitely treasures that I'm grateful to take away and to you know have in my toolbox <laughs> just having been on this healing journey but at the beginning it was like I don't even care about that this is just painful no you of course not you know of course but not. Yes. To be able to look at those behind us and the listeners that we have on our podcast now or, you know, people in the audience who've never told their story for the first time to just be able to lend that encouragement to them that, you know, I hate that you went through this. I wish I could have changed it for you, but I do know that it's going to get better and God can meet you in this and give you hope and strength and... Creativity in ways you had never dreamed of and all of these wonderful things if you just can stick it out
2: Yes, and the weight of your voice of somebody who has been where they were both in terms of the abuse and in terms of working through it Has tremendous power in their lives because you're on the same path. You're just in a different place
1: Dr. Langberg you have so much international experience as well um, working with survivors of trauma would you say um, that the effects of trauma, especially sexual abuse, is universal? No, yes. you do, you would yes. Every, oh, absolutely. do you feel like everything is quite similar, or are there certain things that Americans should know about survivors from other countries, or are we all just kind of dealing with the same stuff?
2: Well, trauma tends to have the same outcome in people's lives. I mean obviously, there are variations and mm. all of that but but Yes, the similarities are great. One Mm -hmm. of the differences, I think, that I have encountered in some places, um, I was in a country some years ago and was talking about sexual abuse. It was the first time anybody had ever done that in that country. Wow. And a man came up to me and he said, Diane, you have to understand, quote, incest is simply part of our culture
1: heard that a lot
2: so Mm -hmm. what that meant was certainly for girls which is what he was talking about he wasn't about boys i'm sure it's as bad for boys in many ways but Mm -hmm. what he was saying to me is no girl or woman has ever known a girl or woman that didn't happen to Mm -hmm. She can't even think i don't want this because it shouldn't be happening it is what happens I was in uh, Cambodia in February teaching people from 10 different countries about abuse and trauma this past February, Mm. and there was a woman there from a country up in the middle of nowhere, whatever, and she said, I've been there for 20 years, and I have never met a female who has not been sexually abused.
1: Yeah. Never. Goodness. Yeah. I remember doing a book tour in Kenya, and many of the moms were saying, well, we were sexually abused, so we just expect it to happen to our daughters.
2: Yes, it's what happens if you're a girl. And the same thing is true often with domestic violence. I mm. mean, if you've never known a woman who wasn't beaten, you expect to be beaten. Yeah. So here, at least with access to literature and things like that, mm-hmm. we know that this does not actually happen to everybody. If you're in a country where you've never heard anything different, you wouldn't even know to seek help. You don't seek help for something that happens to everybody. But what's to help?
1: I think it's good for us to think about those who are going through things in other countries. And, but I also love that trauma is so universal in the effects yeah. of it and suffering. Yeah. And, you know, it crosses all borders. And Yes. It's part
2: just- of how human beings all around the world ruin human beings.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow.
2: <laughs> and, and the damage across cultures is very similar. You know, it shuts people up, it isolates them, it terrifies them, it affects their sleep. You know, they have utter helplessness. All of those things that are experienced here in response to such traumas are experienced globally.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think in community of survivors, it's it's helpful to our healing. So whether we're yeah. here or on the other side of the world, that we all can sort of understand where one another are at when it comes to healing from sexual abuse. Yes,
2: yes, there are ways that you can connect and mm-hmm. understand and walk with because you can be from Timbuktu and you can be from Cincinnati, and there's similarities.
1: Mm-hmm. So, what are some of the major topics that you feel most passionate about when it comes to sexual abuse or survivors, or even you know the Church Two movement? I know your Twitter feed is one of my favorites. You have a lot <laughs> of really powerful. Packed one-liners, so no, thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, so, what are some of the things that that you really enjoy talking about, and and maybe just some final thoughts for those who are on their their healing journey from sexual abuse? Just some encouragement for them yep. to keep going.
2: Well, one of the topics that I'm doing more and more about um, is the topic of power. Yes, um, because that's what abuse is.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: it's a, it's, it's an abuse of power whether it's sexual abuse or domestic abuse or rape or you know whatever that's right. an abuse of power and I think that the Christian community has very little understanding of power <laughs> and so that's one of the reasons I think if you go to somebody in the church about something that's happened um, first of all if you're over 18 they assume it's consensual
3: right <laughs>
2: you know, which is a huge mistake,
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, and they don't understand that abuse, such as you described in your own life, is not just sexual abuse, but it's sexual abuse by the person who had the power in your life and who was supposed to care. Mm -hmm. That's way more than, quote, just, there's no such thing, sexual abuse.
1: I think and that's part really of what good. we've done
2: I... is assume that that mostly, you know, that those kinds of things happen with really bad people who are strangers, which is absolutely false, yeah. statistically. Yeah. It's like 95% know the people who abuse them. And so it, it's, the betrayal is not just that it's sexual abuse, but the betrayal is power that God has given to caretake and to bless and to nurture has been used to exploit and damage and abuse.
1: And that seems to be one of the core layers that need healed. Am I right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like that's so true. And it's something that's not spoken about very much because, you know, I can step off a stage and a number of sexual abuse fr- survivors will come forward and, you know, talk about something that happened when they were a child. But then if you go deeper, mm. s- so often, they also were abused later in life, you yes. know, by someone that was over them and some sort of authority, but they're not able to actually identify that as sexual abuse because, like you said, maybe they were over eighteen,
2: yes, but I mean you can be forty and be abused, you know mm-hmm. when somebody has power, that's what they can do.
1: That's right. do you think that and this might be a loaded question, but you know, patriarchy. Or, you know, con- complementarianism versus egalitarianism, does any of that play a role?
2: Number one, I don't like
1: those terms. <laughs>
2: okay. What terms do you like? I don't do want you either like. one of them. <laughs> well, I, they feel like terms that some people decided were Christian and stuck them in somewhere.
1: Yeah. I do agree. <laughs> yes.
2: So that's one. So I don't use them. Yeah. um well, they I'm not going baggage. to either. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs>
2: Well, they carry baggage and assumptions with them, depending on who you're talking to. That is so true.
1: That is so true.
2: So that, that's my first response. Yeah. Secondly, the answer is yes, partly because they've been baptized. Mm-hmm. So people listen to whatever somebody in a particular camp says because that particular term has been baptized as the only good and right way.
1: Mm. Yep.
2: Um,
1: but it causes so much division.
2: It causes terrible division. That's another reason that I don't like them. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if you stand in front of husbands and talk them talk to them about loving their wives as Christ loved the church, and you actually break that down so you can they can have some idea of what that looks like when you're living with somebody, mm-hmm. that's a whole different thing than saying, "Are you this or that?" <laughs>
3: yeah,
1: exactly.
2: It's yeah. so true. Part of the reason I also don't like them, in, mm-hmm. and is
1: that they are used as power words. Well, that's why I brought it up. Yeah. Yep.
2: And so if I'm in X camp, the people in power say this, so I think this, so I should act like that. Yeah. And if I'm in Y camp, the people in power say this, and they say God said that. And so so they're used in ways that I think are very damaging. Yeah, They are not only used to abuse, they are used to let abuse continue and to say that it's godly, mm. which is to profane the name of God. Because there is nothing that is sinful that is godly. Mm-hmm. That's 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 an oxymoron. That's impossible. And there is nothing in the scriptures to justify abuse of another human being. I don't care who it is. So it's really muddied the waters.
0: Such good perspective. Thank you. As we're looking at trauma and survivors of sexual abuse, what do you think survivors need to hear more?
2: You know, man, woman, boy, girl, whatever, who's been sexually abused— To cross the threshold into somebody's office to get help means you are a man or woman of courage, Mm. which is not what they feel at all. But you are taking power over your own life, making a decision to get help, to look at the thing you most want to forget Mm. and that causes you the most pain. That takes courage.
3: Yes, it does.
2: So, I mean, I say that to people, but but just uh, when somebody comes in, particularly at the beginning, and just full of raw pain and feeling helpless, and they were helpless when the abuse happened and all of that, they really don't see how much courage they have. So I want them to see it and know it and see that I not only see it, but I respect it.
1: Yeah, and just, you know, as a professional, as an experienced psychologist, you... Would just encourage anyone listening to take that courageous step in seeking therapy for the first time, yes. or
2: well, and yes. for those or the sixth who, time, it
1: doesn't matter. Yeah, yes. coming back. Yes. Yeah, and for those who are you know navigating those first awkward sessions, you would say stick it out. Oh, yeah.
2: But I would also give them, you know, people often, I get emails and stuff, you know, do you know somebody in this town, in this state who can do what you do? And the answer is almost 99% of the time, no. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Not because they aren't there, but I just don't know. You know, I'm not a referral source, really. Um, But what I do want to do is give them the power to ask the right questions. Because what I have often found is, They will go in and say, do you work with sexual abuse? And somebody will say yes. And what that means is that somebody told them once that they were sexually abused, but they would like to learn more. So they're going to practice on you. So and then, of course, sometimes it really means it's true. but You can't tell by that answer. And so I encourage people when they are calling around to find out, you know, do you have experience with trauma? Mm -hmm. what kind of training have you had for that? Have you worked specifically with whatever kind of abuse they're dealing with, sexual abuse, rape, whatever, Uh military sexual assault? Where did you learn about that? How many years have you been doing this? And, uh, you know, are there particular people in the field that you respect whose stuff you've read or you sat under them or whatever? Mm -hmm. Those are legitimate questions. Anybody who's threatened by that, you don't want to go see.
1: Okay, that's good. That's really good. Because if you're going to go in
2: there, which takes a lot of guts Mm -hmm. and be vulnerable and look at your story, you have and pay for it, no less. You have the right to know what you're going to get.
1: Yeah. And for those who may walk into their first session with this person and they just don't feel that click. Would you say they should try again with them a few times and see if it works itself out or shop around from that point? What would you encourage? I get a lot of college students who ask me this question.
2: Well, I guess one of the things I would want them to do is to go away and assess the click. Because not all clicks are created equal. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it could be just sheer fear of doing what you're doing.
1: I think oftentimes that's what it is. But
2: so I generally would encourage somebody to do two or three sessions and to tell the person what they feel and see what happens. Great. Yeah. Because if you say, I'm I'm not feeling comfortable, I feel like I wish you did this more, or I wish you didn't do that or something, and they don't answer well, it's not a safe place. Yeah. If your feelings and your questions are not allowed, Mm -hmm. it's not okay.
0: I remember a counselor said to me once, yeah, it stinks what happened to you and you can't change a lot of it, but you now get to take responsibility of your healing journey. And I think a part of that is being your own advocate and going in with confidence and saying, okay, I may feel like a train wreck, but I care enough about myself to put myself in a safe place with a counselor and a therapist. So I have to at least give myself a chance to ask these questions to make sure this is the right place for me.
2: Absolutely part of what you're doing there is assessing safety which that's this, this is a good thing yeah <laughs> this is not a bad thing and if the person responds to you and says well I can promise you I'm a safe person I mean that I <laughs> <laughs> I remember somebody telling me years ago about going to somebody who said that and I said what did you say and she said I said yeah right I mean <laughs> <laughs> that's what the last guy said you know yeah <laughs> <No> kidding. <laughs> <last
3: guy>. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> oh.
1: I don't think so that's great wow well Dr. Langberg, I, again, just really respect and admire you and appreciate your time so much with us today. Um, If anyone wants to get a hold of your books, where would you want us to send them?
2: If they Google my name, they'll come to my website and it's all there.
1: Understand. Okay. Thank you so
2: much. Let me just say one more thing to survivors, if I can. Yes. I want them to know that I have hope for them. Mm -hmm. They don't have to have any. They can piggyback on mine, on yours, Mm -hmm. on those who have watched people walk this road. But it's there, whether they can see it or feel
1: it or not. I think that carries a lot of weight coming from someone who's seen so much, seen, walked through so many stories and deep, deep trauma all around the world. So thank you. We will hold on to that hope and, and keep walking.
0: Thank you, Diane. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, write a review if you heard something you liked, even invite others to listen so we can be on this healing journey together. You can check us out on Facebook or go to IamOneVoice.org.